Welcome to AUA's Urolithiasis Metabolic Evaluation and Medical Treatment. Thank you all for attending. Um, it is uh, obviously an interesting time, interesting year, a little bit different than uh, we typically do it, but hopefully it'll remain a uh, really practical experience for everybody. Um, I want to quickly uh, introduce the faculty and then uh, announce just one adjustment. Unfortunately, Dr. Eisner is ill, uh, so I will be uh, delivering his talk um, on his behalf today. Um, so we'll still be able to share that content and expertise. Um, Sarah Best, uh, Dr. Sarah Best, who is a at the University of Wisconsin and had, uh, has done a fellowship uh, at the University of Texas Southwestern with Dr. Pearl, who is an expert in uh, both stone disease and um, uh, patient report outcomes and uh, and as well as uh, Dr. Jody Antonelli, who is on faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern, who also did her fellowship there um, and had the uh, privilege of doing her residency with me. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm very excited uh, for uh, the course. Um, bear with us as we work through any small bugs. Uh, high level, these are the uh, learning objectives, which if you've looked through the packet you've seen, I think the one thing that I just wanna call out as we try to make this as practical as uh, we can. And so please share questions, uh, whatever's on your mind um, or um, uh, with us and we'll do our best to get to all the questions um, at the end. And with that, I will hand it over uh, to uh, Dr. Antonelli who will be discussing uh, indications for an interpretation of metabolic stone evaluation. Thank you, Mike, um, and I'd like to thank the AUA for the for the opportunity to participate in this course. Okay, I have the following disclosure. Um, so for this portion of the course, I'm gonna talk about what patients require a metabolic evaluation, what the components of that evaluation should be, and then how you should approach the values that you get on a 24-hour urine. So first, who should be evaluated? Uh, there's retrospective data to suggest that the natural cumulative recurrence rate for first-time stone formers without specific therapy is 14% at one year, 35% at five years, and 52% at 10 years. In addition to retrospective data, there was a prospective study which followed untreated first-time stone formers for eight years, and they found a similar recurrence rate as the um, retrospective studies. They also found that the recurrence was most common within the first year. So if you look at the year of this study, it was quite some time ago, and the imaging that was used was plain radiography. So it's possible that the stones that they deemed recurrence were actually small stones present from the beginning, but just not visible um, on plain radiography. Uh, now, there's also data to suggest that, um, that first-time stone formers may not require such an aggressive workup. Hoskins and colleagues coined the term the stone clinic effect, and basically they looked at first-time stone formers and they gave them general dietary recommendations for stone prevention, um, high fluid intake, and avoidance of dietary excess of certain substances. They actually found a relatively low incidence of recurrence, and they found metabolic inactivity in 60% of the patients that were followed for more than five years. Now, conversely, Dr. Pack and the group here at UT Southwestern did a metabolic study uh, where they follow, they looked at 34 first-time stone formers and performed a metabolic evaluation. They found that 80% had a metabolic abnormality. And not only were the metabolic abnormalities as common as they were in recurrent stone formers, but they were actually just as severe. So I think this 
really highlights an important point that um, a, a first stone event may actually be the harbinger of a more serious systemic disorder. And that first stone event may represent an opportunity to diagnose that, that disorder earlier than, than you would have otherwise. So for the next portion of this talk, I'm gonna discuss uh, the approach to a metabolic evaluation as outlined in the AUA guidelines on the medical management of stones. So the first step is that you should um, perform a risk assessment for the stone patient. So you should determine whether that patient is either low risk or high risk. A low risk stone former is a first time stone former without a family history of stones and without a personal history of any of the medical comorbidities listed here. A high risk stone former is a recurrent stone former. So somebody that's had either more than one stone episode or presents for the first time with more than one stone. Um, a person who presents initially in childhood or adolescence, a patient with a solitary kidney, um, or a first time stone former who has a, a family history or a, um, a, a medical problem that predisposes to stones. Uh, low risk stone formers should be evaluated with a screening evaluation and high risk stone formers should be evaluated with a metabolic evaluation. It's also, I guess, important to note the AUA guidelines do specifically state as well that if you have a low risk stone former who's interested in a full metabolic evaluation, certainly it's appropriate to, to do that as well. Um, so the screening evaluation, which should be done for the low-risk patients, um, begins with a history, and it's really important to get a thorough history on a stone patient, not only their per personal medical history, um, uh, but also asking about family history of stones and dietary history. Uh, then you also want to uh, obtain blood work, some of which may recently have been done on this patient that you can look at, but a basic metabolic panel looking at electrolytes, creatinine, specifically looking at calcium. The guidelines do recommend getting a serum uric acid, and then um, they do not recommend getting a serum PTH unless you suspect primary hyperparathyroidism. So only obtain a serum PTH if a patient has either frankly elevated or high normal serum calcium. And then um, obtaining a urinalysis, looking at pH, you know, either, either extremes of pH, either low pH or high pH can predispose to certain types of stones, um, looking for crystals in the urine, and also if there's a urine culture that's available. So for medical history, it's important to ask um, patients about GI disease, basically any bowel resections, any disorders that may lead to um, significant diarrhea or malabsorptive disorders, um, a history of gout, bone disease, type 2 diabetes or osteoporosis, um, states where there may be metabolic resistance um, could potentially lead to a more acidic urine and predispose a patient to uric acid stones, uh, a history of recurrent UTIs, and then um, if they've already been diagnosed with a disorder such as renal tubular acidosis or primary hyperparathyroidism or sarcoidosis. It's also important to review the patient's medications because there are certainly some medications um, that uh, can, can significantly affect a patient's risk for stones. Calcium supplementation is, is one of those. Um, it's important to ask about that. Vitamin D as well can be an issue. Um, you, actually only in very high doses. Um, vitamin C uh, can be metabolized to oxalate. Um, substances such as acetazolamide, topiramate, and zanisamide um, are carbonic anhydrase-like inhibitors. They uh, affect the urine uh, and, and give a picture similar to renal tubular acidosis with very high pH and low citrate and predisposed to calcium phosphate stones. Um, agents that increase uric acid in the urine 
triamterine can actually uh, precipitate crystals into the urine that increases uh, the likelihood for calcium stones. Lasix can increase urine calcium, and then um, some protease inhibitors that are given for HIV uh, can also uh, cause stones that are not even visible on CT. So um, included in the screening evaluation, if you have it, if a patient's recently passed a stone, you should send it for analysis, and then um, obtaining pl uh, a plain x-ray. Stone analysis is, is really only helpful if you have one of the less common types of stones. Unfortunately, 80, 85% of the time, the stones come back as calcium, calcium oxalate, and um, it's not as, as helpful in that situation. But if a composition is cysteine, um, then, uh, you know, then you, you know the patient has cystinuria. Um, if the stone is uric acid, uh, then you should really be looking toward uh, potentially uh, metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, um, that, could, that could be decreasing the urine pH and predisposing to uric acid stone formation. If the um, stone analysis comes back as struvite, calcium apatite, or magnesium ammonium phosphate, you should be concerned about potentially recurrent UTIs. And then if the patient analysis comes back as a predominance of hydroxyapatite, it should really raise a red flag to you that this person should be worked up metabolically um, because that's a, a stone type that's much more often associated with um, metabolic disorders that predispose to aggressive stone formation like renal tubular acidosis, primary hyperparathyroidism, um, medullary sponge kidney, or as I mentioned on the previous slide, um, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors or medications like topiramate um, can, can cause a similar picture. So a uh, plain x-ray could be helpful. You know, if the stone isn't radio-opaque, then it's likely uric acid. Less dense stones could be struvite or cysteine, um, and more dense stones are calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate. So if a patient goes through the entire screening evaluation and you don't find any abnormalities, that patient can really be given conservative dietary recommendations. So aggressive fluid um, intake up to 100 ounces a day, um, limiting sodium, animal protein, and foods high in oxalate, and um, not limiting dietary calcium, but eating the recommended daily allowance. So for high-risk stone formers, the evaluation includes all the components of the screening evaluation, but additionally includes a 24-hour urine, and that makes it a full metabolic evaluation. There's no consensus in the literature as to whether you should do one or two collections up front. I think most people would argue that they're hesitant to start a patient on long-term medications based on one 24-hour urine. So two values up front sometimes helps you make a decision um, and be more comfortable with the decision for medication sooner. Um, also, multiple collections can reveal additional diagnoses that you may not find on a single collection. And if you're concerned a patient could have cystinuria or you, you get a stone analysis back that's a cysteine stone, you want to be sure to additionally send a quantitative screen for urine cysteine. So when you get your 24-hour um, urine uh, report, you should approach the, the values um, you know, in kind of a systematic fashion. And this is just one example of, of how you can do that. The first thing you should look at is if the collection is adequate. And that's looking at the urine creatinine. So for women and men, it is weight-based um, creatinine that should you, you should see. If the value is well below or well above what you would expect, then you have to be concerned that it's either an under-collection or an over-collection. And the, the rest of that really can't be interpreted. Um, and then next, I look at the urine volume. So is the patient drinking enough? Depending on what source you read, a patient who's a stone former should make at least two to two and a half liters of urine per day. 
Next, you want to look at the urine pH and see if the urine is either very acidic or very basic. So low urine pH puts patients at risk for uric acid stones. High urine pH puts them at risk for calcium phosphate stones. And again, if a patient has very high urine pH, it should send off a red flag. They could potentially have distal renal tubular acidosis or, um, or, or uh, recurrent urinary tract infections. Next, I look at the citrate, and um, citrate uh, should be elevated over 500 is ideal. Um, and patients who have low citrate could be due to idiopathic causes, but a common cause um, is any kind of state of metabolic acidosis, so diarrhea, distal renal tubular acidosis. Um, next, you want to look at urine calcium. Is it high, and if so, why? So urine calcium on a um, unrestricted diet should be below 225 or 250. And um, you, you know, we're going to touch on this more later in the course, but really the thing you're trying to, to determine is does this patient have primary hyperparathyroidism? First place my eye goes if the urine calcium is elevated is to the urine sodium. So for every 100 points that um, you can lower urine sodium, urine calcium goes down by 50. So if a patient has extremely elevated urine sodium and only mildly elevated urine calcium, you know, the urine calcium elevation may completely be due to um, eating excess salt. Next place my eye goes is to the serum calcium. So if a patient has either um, frankly elevated or high normal serum calcium, then that's a patient that I get a serum parathyroid hormone. Next, you want to look at your uh, urine, your, urine oxalate, and um, a urine oxalate below 240 is normal. Um, if it's higher than that, commonly it's due to dietary excess, but um, uh, enteric causes, again, things like bowel resections, malabsorptive disorders um, could be a problem. Very rarely, patients can have a disorder called primary hyperoxaluria. Um, it's an extremely rare disorder. Um, and I think when looking for the cause of high urine oxalate, history is very important, dietary history, family history. History, um, and medical history. And then urine uric acid, um, it, you want to value under 600 ideally. Um, elevated urine uric acid is often due to purine load, to, to animal protein excess in the diet. Um, and uh, looking at the urine pH and the urine sulfate are helpful as well. So if a patient has elevated urine uric acid and elevated urine sulfate, um, then you can more um, you know, surely say that it's likely due to increased animal protein intake. So this schematic just um, goes over, you know, kind of a broad view of calcium-based stones and uric acid-based stones and common causes. You know, most calcium-based stones are due to either high urine calcium, high urine oxalate, low citrate, which is an inhibitor, or a combination of these things in addition to potentially low urine volume and, and, um, and, and low pH. Uric acid stones can be due to purine overload, but more often due to an acid load. And again, um, uh, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, um, and obesity should um, you know, be on your radar as these can lower urine pH and increase your chance for uric acid stones. So the follow-up for um, patients that you're you know, following in a clinic for metabolic evaluations, the success is really based on changes in urine parameters. So I think patients need to be aware up front that this isn't a one-time uh, event. The 24-hour urine is going to be something that has to be repeated you know, at intervals over the course of their follow-up. Uh, the AUA guidelines are vague on how often this should be done. They state at least annually or with greater frequency if needed. Um, and they recommend a single 24-hour urine at least within six months. Um, and 
and periodic blood testing, especially if you're starting a patient on pharmacotherapy to assess for adverse effects. <clears throat> so um, if a patient has another stone, they recommend repeating the stone analysis. Um, and especially if a patient is not responding to treatment, it's important because their stone type can change. If you have a patient with struvite stones, it's important not only to completely eradicate the stones, but try to um, decrease their chance for reinfections. And then um, in all stone patients, you should periodically obtain imaging follow-up. And again, the guidelines are vague on this. They don't you know, state what interval the follow-up, uh, the imaging follow-up should be done or what imaging should be done, but they do recommend um, imaging follow-up at periodic intervals. So um, in conclusion, stone formers should undergo a simple screening evaluation. Um, again, a first-time stone could be the harbinger of a more serious systemic disease. If you have a first-time or low-risk stone former, um, they really uh, you know, only require a screening evaluation. And often, if that comes back negative, they could just be given conservative dietary measures. Um, High-risk stone formers need the screening evaluation uh, plus a 24-hour urine, which makes it a full metabolic evaluation. And then these patients, in addition, to dietary recommendations often would benefit from pharmacotherapy. Thank you. Thanks, Jody. And with that, um, I will have the pleasure of introducing Sarah Best to give her talk um, on thiazides and hypercalciuria. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight uh, for the AUA Live course. Uh, it's really you know, in these unique times, it's really nice to have opportunities to get to spend some time with our peers in our community. Uh, I'd also like to say thank you to the AUA itself for really going above and beyond to arrange this type of activity. It's a lot of work that goes into uh, arranging these sorts of webinars and things like that. And so the folks who are on the call with us uh, are really amazing and we are really lucky to have them. So in the next few minutes, I'm gonna to talk to you about using thiazides to treat stone disease. These are my disclosures. So as we've mentioned, this is largely a treatment-based course. And my goal in the next few minutes is to help you identify which patients might be good candidates for thiazides and then how to use those medications. Specifically, we'll identify who are candidates for this and then how to use the medications, but also it's important, of course, to be familiar with side effects and how to monitor patients on medications, as well as what kind of results our patients can expect to get out of taking a medication every day. So it's hard to have a talk about thiazides without talking about hypercalciuria. Uh, Dr. Antonelli, of course, in her always awesome lecture uh, touched on this, but hypercalciuria is important to understand. And the reasons for that are several fold. First, it's that it's extremely common in stone formers. Uh, it's one of the most common risk factors after low urine volume. So about 40 to 75% of patients, if you check who are stone formers, are gonna have an elevated urine calcium. But the other reasons are that the number of Randall's plaques, which are thought to be the precursors to stone formation, have been associated in studies with urinary calcium levels, meaning that the higher the urine calcium level, the more amount of Randall's plaque is seen. And finally, clinical studies have shown that the medical treatment of stone disease often fails if the hypercalciuria isn't addressed. 
So hypercalciuria really has three different types. And we used to get really worked up about these, you know, differentiating between each of these different types. And we do less of that now for reasons I'll explain. But there, needless to say, there are three types. Absorptive, which is uh, where the intestinal tract is overly efficient at absorbing calcium from the foods and drinks that we consume. Renal leak, just like it sounds like, is where there's a problem with the actual nephron where it is leaking out calcium. So normally when the blood is filtered in the nephron, the vast majority of the calcium is supposed to be reabsorbed back into the bloodstream. But in renal leak, there, that's the defect, it can't do that. So you are constantly leaking calcium or wasting calcium uh, into your urine and that can actually be a big medical problem. And then finally, the last cause is primary hyperparathyroidism, where usually one of the parathyroid glands is enlarged and overproducing parathormone. So like I said, we used to try to figure out exactly which one of the three it was, but now really as our job as clinicians is really just to figure out who are the patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. They're the only ones you treat differently. So to determine who these patients are, you want to check a serum PTH and calcium, or at least check the calcium, and if it's high or borderline high, follow that up with a PTH. So the other two, absorptive and renal leak, are both treated with thiazides. So you don't need to figure out which one is which. So Dr. Antonelli alluded to this already, uh, that it's important to think about sodium when we're talking about hypercalciuria. So when I'm teaching my residents, I may have a 24-hour urine collection just like this. And we start from the left and look at it, and this patient has an elevated uh, urinary calcium, mildly so, 293. So I then want our eyes to jump right over to the urine sodium level, which in this patient is elevated at 304. Now that's important because the amount of sodium in our diet is really not, is way more than our bodies need. And the way that our body deals with that excess sodium is it all gets excreted in the urine. The problem with that is that sodium drags calcium out with it in the urine. So if you have a ton of sodium in your diet, you're gonna pee it out, which itself would probably be fine, but you're gonna also drag calcium with it. So as also Jody alluded to, there is a mathematical relationship between these two variables. So for every 100 milliequivalents, you can drop your urine sodium, your urine calcium should go down by 50. So using that example of this particular euro risk, this patient had a mildly elevated urine calcium, 293 milligrams per day, and the sodium was high at 304. So if this patient made even moderate restrictions in their dietary sodium, dropping it by 100 points, that's still actually pretty high, but you know, even a modest reduction, their urine calcium is gonna drop by 50 points and that actually gets them right into the normal range. So some patients may only need to adjust their dietary sodium intake in order to correct their hypercalciuria. The uh, other thing to know though, is that sodium is important even in patients whose hypercalciuria can't be fixed only with diet. So if you, like me, have patients who would 
way prefer to just take a pill every day rather than make potentially difficult lifestyle changes like cutting out fast food or pre-prepared foods, things like that. The problem is that doesn't work. So if there's still too much sodium in the diet, even if they're taking a thiazide, unfortunately that excess urinary sodium is gonna block the hypocalciuric action of the thiazides. So they, I tell patients, you may be taking the pill essentially for nothing because it's not gonna benefit you unless you also cut back on that dietary sodium. So I'm really lucky at the University of Wisconsin. Here we have uh, Dr. Christina Penniston, who is kind of the world's expert on diet and kidney stones. And she will meet with and counsel patients uh, here to review their dietary intake and identify what she calls sneaky sodium, like patients who eat tons of bread or pastries or lunch meat, cheese, things like that. It's not just the salt shaker that can be the source of this. So the take home message here is that we really, anytime we have somebody with hypercalciuria, we've got to remember to jump our eyes over and look at the urine sodium as well and take care of that too. So switching gears a little bit, we'll talk about the actual drug that this lecture is based around, thiazides. Uh, and according to the AUA guideline on the medical management of stone disease, thiazides indeed are the mainstay of treatment for hypercalciuria. And they can be used for both absorptive and renal leak hypercalciuria. In terms of the actual mechanism of it working for these two conditions, um, again, we don't necessarily have to separate these patients out uh, and know who has what, but uh, the way that uh, thiazides work in patients with absorptive hypercalciuria is it, it doesn't fix the underlying problem. It doesn't make the gut less efficient at absorbing that calcium. So there's still more calcium absorbed into the bloodstream initially, but when it gets filtered through the nephron, that calcium that is then showing up in the nephron is reabsorbed. That's what the drug actually does is causes it to be reabsorbed in the distal tubule. And then that calcium can be redeposited in the bone where you want it, rather than in the urine where it can form stones. The reason this sort of matters for understanding at least uh, is that in time, patients with absorptive hypercalciuria can essentially fill up their skeleton, is the way I kind of think about it, uh, and the effect in dropping cal urine calcium of thiazide medications can attenuate. So you don't necessarily have to figure out who's got what, but this is part of the reason that you're gonna wanna do follow-up 24-hour urine collections. So even if your patient's taking the medication uh, as you prescribed it, they may not be lying to you, you know, two years down the road, it may be that they have some attenuation and need a, a drug holiday from that thiazide. On the other hand, for renal leak hypercalciuria, thiazides are like the perfect medication because they actually correct the problem. Um, they help the, the nephron reabsorb calcium so it can be put back into the bones. And this is really important because uh, patients who are constantly leaking calcium, they uh, are getting that calcium from their bones or they're essentially dissolving their bones in order to maintain a normal blood, serum, uh, blood calcium level. Uh, because that's really tightly controlled by parathyroid hormone, et cetera. So they pump out all this extra PTH 
And the effect of that is that it breaks that breaks down patients' bones. So it's important to know that thiazides can fix that problem and help protect patients' uh, bone health as well. So whenever we talk about a medication, uh, it's important to have a conversation with our patients to let them know that thiazides uh, are not approved by the FDA or labeled by the FDA to be used for stone prevention. Uh, that's because you know the industry these drugs have been around forever nobody has wanted to spend the money uh to get studies and then fda approval uh to do that but it certainly is very much indicated and the use of these medications is condoned by the aua guideline for the medical management of kidney stones so it's certainly very appropriate these are uh, the medications that we consider thiazides and use for the treatment of hypercalciuria and calcium stone formation listed here. Uh, which one people use really kind of depends uh, largely, I think, on where they trained and what drug they got familiar with using and comfortable using. So they all can work very well. Uh, hydrochlorothiazide is cheap, easily available, works well, uh, but is a twice-a-day medication. So some of us prefer using either endapamide or chlorthalidone because they're once-a-day medications. All three of these medications, as we're going to talk about next, can cause hypokalemia, low blood potassium. So often they are prescribed simultaneously with potassium citrate. We'll again talk about that more, uh, but that's something to be aware of. But that kind of alludes to the next drug on the list here, uh, amylaride hydrochlorothiazide, which is a combination drug that puts amylaride, which is a potassium sparing diuretic, into the same tablet as the hydrochlorothiazide so that these patients don't need to take an additional uh, set of tablets uh, or take a potassium su supplement because it's already being involved in the, in the medication itself. So, if you have patients that don't have acidic urine risk factor or have hypocitraturia, this can be a really good drug choice. I use this frequently in patients to reduce the burden of taking pills uh, if they don't need the citrate or alkali of the potassium citrate. So again, thiazides have side effects. It's important to be aware of them. I think Pretty much everybody knows about hypokalemia. That's an important one, certainly. Um, but other ones that we need to know about as urologists, especially as stone doctors, is that it can actually cause increased risk for other types of stone risk factors. So thiazides can cause a drop in urine citrate. And since citrate is a stone preventer, you want as high a level as possible. So sometimes you might trade one risk factor for the other when you provide a thiazide and you want to watch for that. Similarly, hyperuricosuria, which is a risk factor for calcium stone formation, um, can also happen from taking a thiazide. So important to check that 24-hour urine follow-up. Uh, and then finally, hypotension, I would say that's relatively rare. I can think of kind of a handful of patients over the years who've had to stop taking the drug because of symptomatic hypotension. Uh, many of us are pretty hypertensive uh, and can tolerate a little bit of drug. And finally, especially for diabetics, this can be a big deal, the hyperglycemia. So it's important to watch for that and warn them about it. I mentioned that we often prescribe potassium citrate uh, with thiazide medications, and that's because it's really a perfect treatment for the two most common side effects, the hypokalemia and hypocitraturia. Both of those can be nicely treated 
with a BID typically dosing of potassium citrate. But their big pills uh, can be quite expensive, things like that. So if patients don't need them necessarily, it's nice to consider an alternative. So once you prescribe a patient this medication, uh, you need to follow them up, of course, uh, as we would with any type of new therapy that we prescribe patients. The important thing to do is to make sure to tell patients and order a basic metabolic panel that's gonna have your potassium level, uh, glucose, uh, and a calcium in it about seven to 10 days after they start the thiazide medication. And then the guidelines suggest that we should recheck that at least yearly, uh, even after that first one that's uh, done at seven to 10 days. And then typically after any change in medical therapy, uh, we would want to get another 24-hour urine in about four to six months or so. And the reason we do that is, as I tell patients, if you're gonna take a medication every day, or make a big lifestyle change, you wanna see results and know that you're on the right dose. So, you know, you checking that 24 hour urine will show the effect to patients to reinforce, hey, this is working, hey, cutting back on my dietary sodium and taking this pill is reducing my risk factors. Um, you know, so I think that is important to show patients, but also lets you adjust the dose. Some patients are going to need a larger dose of the potassium or of the thiazide or might need to start potassium citrate. Uh, and the AUA guideline, it's important to point out, also recommends that 24-hour urines be checked yearly to monitor the efficacy of stone therapy. That's overall, not just for thiazides. So the final part of my talk that I wanted to talk about is what is the efficacy of these medications? You know, patients who are gonna take a long-term drug, they wanna know, is this really worth it? Uh, and the good news is that yes, it is. Um, thiazides, as we mentioned, have classically been used for hypercalciuria. There's good data for this. But I think, you know, especially for folks um, that we have on the call tonight, I think a common thing I hear from urologists is that they're uncomfortable or nervous uh, or not confident in their ability to interpret 24-hour urine collections and prescribe medications. You know, and there are other places where the test isn't even available in some communities, and then some patients just can't manage to get it together and, and get the test done. So even if you can't get a 24-hour urine collection to prove a patient has hypercalciuria. There's actually really good data that shows that thiazides work for calcium stone formers, even if you haven't proven that they have it, even if you don't have the 24-hour urine. So I really would encourage people to get comfortable with these medications because as I'm going to show you, they really can work. So this study here is the classic one uh, that's often quoted for the use of thiazides in patients with proven hypercalciuria. It's by Borgi and colleagues. And what they did uh, is randomize 75 hypercalciuric stone formers to one of three medication or treatment plans uh, for a total of three years. Uh, all of them were given instructions to uh, modify their diet and fluid intake. One group got both indapamide and allopurinol, and one group got just indapamide. And what they found was that the patients receiving indapamide dropped their urine calcium levels by 50%. But more importantly, those receiving indapamide 
went from having more than one stone event on average per year to almost zero. So these particular patients in this study, these 75 folks were actually pretty brisk stone formers, pretty bad stone disease, and they went to almost zero stone events per year. So that's a big deal uh, to be able to offer to patients because as we all know, uh, stones can be a really miserable, life-altering uh, event to have in your life. And so decreasing that, especially for brisk stone formers is important. But as promised, even if you have not proven that a patient has hypercalciuria, thiazides can be effective for calcium stone formers. So I, uh, Dr. Pearl Roburn and PAC did a, a meta-analysis looking at the literature on the use of thiazides. And I've put a star next to the studies that were non-selective, meaning they didn't require a patient to have proven hypercalciuria. And as you can see, pretty much everything is to the left of this this zero line, meaning the risk of stone disease went down, or stone events went down on medications. Overall, and overall risk difference of 21% less chance of making stones. So that's a really, you know, a really beneficial medication that we should offer our patients. We should get comfortable with providing for our patients um, so that we can make a big difference in their amount of stone formation. So in summary, uh, candidates for thiazide therapy are patients with hypercalciuria and then recurrent calcium stone formers without hypercalciuria, uh, patients who want to reduce their stone formation who have calcium stones, which as we know is the majority of stone formers have calcium stones. Uh, when we prescribe a thiazide, we want to make sure to monitor serum and urine chemistries for side effects and efficacy. And finally, stone formers who are treated with thiazides can expect a significant reduction in their stone formation rate. And this is a real chance for a win for us as urologists, both to reduce their stones and then those patients who are breaking down their bones who are at risk for fractures later in life and stuff, you can make a big difference and help out patients, not just with their stones. So I'd really encourage you to uh, try to get familiar with using one of these drugs and use it in your patients. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. Um, outstanding talk as always, and thank you to Jody. And I also just wanted to take the time uh, to thank uh, all the AUA staff who've been so uh, helpful with organizing this. This year is obviously truly unique, and uh, certainly we would not be able to do this without them. Uh, and it's been um, it's been a great experience working with all them. So really, thank you so much uh, for that. So I will, uh, I'll be giving the next uh, two talks. Um, I, uh, I am at Duke University Medical Center um, uh, and I'll be uh, starting to give a talk on uh, when to give potassium citrate. Uh, these are my disclosures. So I'm gonna talk a, sort of high level at first, just a little bit about the dosing and formulations of potassium citrate specifically, uh, some side effects and monitoring and then get into the indications. And then finally, I will end with uh, some alternatives. We did field uh, at least one question in regards to um, alternatives for potassium citrate. So uh, most common formulations of potassium citrate, at least the prescription strength, are 10 milliequivalents. And here the milliequivalents are important uh, to note. So 10 milliequivalents is 1,080 milligrams of potassium citrate. The 15 milliequivalent uh, tablets are 1,620 milligrams. 
Uh, you can also get potassium citrate as uh, crystals, as citric K crystals. There are other crystal formulations as well. Um, and each one of these packages have about 30 milliequivalents of potassium citrate. Um, the reason I specifically call out the milligrams is as one of our questioners asked, potassium citrate is often expensive. Um, and as a prescription, uh, patients are often looking for alternatives. The start, and I'll just, in a second, I'll touch upon some sort of over-the-counter alternatives and why they're less than ideal. Um, the typical starting dose, uh, I typically start patients at 20 milliequivalents twice daily with meals. Um, I do emphasize taking with meals because I, one of the more common side effects is upset stomach. Um, if there's coverage for the 15 milliequivalent tablets, um, I'll often start patients on 15, one tablet twice a day, which is obviously preferable for patients. The less pills, the better. Um, and then um, if, if, if patients have trouble with the tablets and prefer the crystals, so for patients who've had prior uh, bowel surgery um, or absorption issues, um, we'll give them one packet twice a day. Um, this is just a, a highlight of some of the over-the-counter potassium citrate formulations that are available. And you will, or I certainly do, from time to time have patients uh, ask me, why do I need a prescription? Can I just take the over-the-counter? Um, it seems to be so much cheaper. And on a uh, per-tablet basis, they are cheaper. The problem is, is the majority of these tablets are, are between one and 200 milligrams which essentially means to get the equivalent dosing uh, to a prescription strength potassium citrate, uh, they'd have to take anywhere between 10 and 20 tablets twice a day. And so the truth of the matter is taking one or two of these a day is, is really ineffectual um, in terms of delivering clinically relevant uh, doses of potassium citrate or particularly the citrate part of it. So I, I put this out there because I do think patients will ask and, and this is often my reply that it, it's fine if you want to, but you're gonna be taking an exceptional amount of tablets uh, to get what you need. Um, the most common side effect with potassium citrate, certainly in my experience is upset stomach. Um, you know, it, it can uh, usually describe sort of a gnawing pain. Um, hyperkalemia, I would say in patients with normal renal function, this is a fairly rare side effect, but you do have to be careful in patients with renal insufficiency. Um, I will say that patients who are normal kalemic uh, with renal insufficiency, that's not an absolute contraindication to giving potassium citrate, but they do require more careful monitoring. Um, and so uh, typically I check a BMP one to two weeks after starting potassium citrate. In some of my patients with renal insufficiency, I'll probably check it more frequently uh, ongoing. Often, um, for most of my stone patients, I either have, who particularly are on medication, I'll get a BMP once a year, or often they'll get it with their primary care providers, and we'll, um, we'll just get that from them. Uh, patients sometimes will complain of muscle cramps or weakness, um, um, and uh, some people will um, uh, complain of some tingling in the hands. I will also say I have seen all kinds of bizarre side effects, potassium citrate. I had a patient who uh, had uh, uh, really bizarre dreams where they couldn't sleep and then they stopped their resolve. I had patients with complaints about hair consistency. Um, again, those are one-offs, but I have seen patients who subsequently stopped and some of these resolve. Um, but these are the most common side effects that we would typically see.
Again, for monitoring for my patients who have normal renal function, I'll check a BMP one to two weeks after initiation. Um, and then as routine, I just check a BMP annually for patients with renal insufficiency a little bit more frequently, depending on the degree of their renal insufficiency. Um, I do think it's an important message that we, as we talk about these, and sorry, this isn't projecting quite as well in the white, but uh, now that I've highlighted the yellow, but I think it is important to repeat 24-hour urine collections. Um, this is a recommendation from the AUA guidelines, um, but it's not uncommon um, uh, that you have to adjust the dose of potassium citrate. It is not a one-size-fits-all. Um, I have patients who do quite well with 20 milliequivalents twice a day. Uh, I have patients who do quite well with 20 milliequivalents once a day. Um, I have patients who are on uh, upwards of six to 10 tablets um, a day. Um, and that's particularly true of patients with um, uric acid stones and very acidic urine. Um, so it's important to, if you're gonna prescribe an intervention, uh, it, I think it's important to monitor the effects uh, of that intervention. And certainly you could just wait for stone recurrence, but this is sort of not like, I, I use the analogy that repeating a 24 hour urine collection is sort of analogous to checking a PSA after, after prostate cancer treatment. You don't just wait to see if the patient has an you know, imageable recurrence. We do, we check an interval marker. Um, we have found in our experience at Duke that uh, obese patients do require more frequent dose adjustments. So it's particularly important in those patients to monitor 24 hour urine for efficacy. The indications, um, so for uric acid stones, low urine pH, uh, that's uh, um, a common indication for uh, potassium citrate. Hypocitraturia, which Dr. Antonelli mentioned uh, earlier in the talk, most commonly that's idiopathic, but it can be associated with renal tubular acidosis. And then it is commonly caused by medications we use for prevention, sort of uh, some, uh, as such as thiazides. Um, again, another reason to repeat 24-hour urines after you initiate therapy, because sometimes if you give a thiazide and a patient continues to produce stones, it's because you've made them hypocitraturic. Um, idiopathic stone formers, so patients who have normal 24-hour urines, um, compliant with diet, but yet continue to make stones. And then cystinurics, it is the first line for, uh, after diet for cystinurics, because cysteine uh, is more soluble in high urine pH. So a really important point I, I wanna highlight is, is uric acid stone prevention. Uric acid stones 100% of the time are caused by low urine pH. Um, it is, it's really simple chemistry. Uric acid is, is not very soluble in uh, acidic urine. Um, and so it takes very little urine, uric acid to precipitate and form stones. Um, and so um, really, um, in, in these patients, they often have profoundly low urine pH. Uh, low urine pH can also be a risk for calcium oxalate stone formation. And again, the treatment for these is, the preventive treatment is alkali therapy. Um, the goal is to increase the pH above six, at which point the, um, at which point the uh, solubility of uric acid dramatically increases. And you can dissolve uric acid stones um, uh, if you can get a urine pH above six and a half. I, um, there's a question about home monitoring of urine pH. You know, there's been a lot of discussion uh, and, and stuff written up about that. Um, I personally don't do that. I usually will check a 24-hour urine at some interval, um, and I tend to repeat the, them annually. Um, I find it to be a better representation of urine pH. 
Um, but there are uh, commercially available kits, and particularly for patients who you're doing dissolution, then uh, I think monitoring home pH can be helpful to make sure they're consistently above that six and a half point. Um, for hypocitraturia, again, there's no strict definition, and you know I often highlight to my patients that um, you know these are all these values are all on basically a spectrum of risk. There's no uh, there's no citrate necessarily where you're at, not at risk for forming stones. Um, and there's no citrate level where you're going to 100% form a stone. Um, these are some of the cutoffs that are proposed. I, I suspect most of us use whatever cutoff the 24-hour urine company uh, that we uh, utilize or whoever does our 24-hour urines um, as a cutoff. Um, it is of note that in general, females have higher citrate levels and um, certainly at least Litholink proposes a higher uh, cutoff for females, um, as does uh, papers written um, uh, some of the published literature um, that supports that. Again, the most common cause of hypocitraturia is idiopathic. Uh, chronic diarrheal state and inflammatory bowel disease or malabsorption, another common uh, cause. Uh, diabetes is a common cause of both low urine pH as well as hypocitraturia. Uh, medications, the, the really the most common um, medication, at least I see in my practice, is topiramate. Um, so topiramate, uh, you know, commonly used for migraines. Um, one of the challenging things about topiramate is it's very effective for migraines, um, and it has this really um, unfortunate side effect of weight loss. So a lot of patients are very reluctant to come off it because not only are their headaches better, but they're losing weight. Um, and so with potassium citrate, however, you can uh, you can help prevent their stones. Uh, renal tubular acidosis, uh, another. Um, uh, cause of hypocitraturia, and then again, thiazide-induced hypocitraturia. Um, just real quick about renal tubular acidosis. Um, so this is something that, I, you know, is fairly common, I, and I probably fairly under-recognized. Under um, again, it can be caused by medications like Topamax, um, and it also could just be um, pathologic for the patient. It is due to an inability of the kidney to secrete hydrogen ions into the urine. So the primary problem is an inability to acidify the urine. And in a complete distal RTA, which is not as common, uh, can lead to systemic metabolic acidosis. More commonly, you have a incomplete distal renal tubular acidosis. And you often see a 24-hour urine collection that looks like this. You have borderline high urine calciums, um, borderline high, you have low urine citrate, and then you have high urine pHs. Um, and these patients are particularly prone to calcium phosphate stones. Um, in the blood, you'll often see hypokalemia and hyperchloremia, uh, as well as some acidosis. And potassium citrate um, physiologically helps to correct the systemic acidosis. Um, the challenge here is you have to give enough potassium citrate to overcome the systemic acidosis to actually see an increase in urinary citrate. So some of these patients do require fairly substantial levels of potassium citrate before you'll note a bump in their urinary citrate. Um, you can also, um, the uh, systemic acidosis is what often predisposes patients to hypercalciuria. And so, um, sometimes correcting their systemic acidosis will improve their urinary calcium. In patients whose hypercalciuria persists, uh, it's certainly appropriate to add a thiazide. Um, and, you know, in general, giving potassium citrate in these patients 
the the um, increase in citrate is uh, disproportionate to the increase in their pH often. So even though you may see a slight increase in their pH, generally the benefits of the potassium citrate outweigh this. Um, so in general, we use this for uh, prevention in this specific case. Um, this is a slide just to highlight all the different um, uh, conditions that potassium citrate has proven to be effective in decreasing stone formation rates. So the nice thing, uh, this is an old slide I've, I've stolen from Glenn Preminger, um, who has presented it through the years. And this is based off of a lot of the work he had done when he was in Dallas. Um, so you just see that regardless of the underlying metabolic abnormality, potassium citrate is very effective at reducing stone formation rates. Um, there have been Cochrane reviews also comparing placebo-controlled trials that further support uh, potassium citrate for stone prevention. So there's, there's pretty good evidence to support its use for stone prevention. In the idiopathic stone former, um, again, this is part of the AUA guidelines. Uh, there's uh, the patients with normal 24-hour urines who continue to make stones. Um, uh, the... Um, uh, that you um, can give them potassium citrate, or if you corrected everything, they persist, potassium citrate's a good option. Um, so some of the alternatives, you know, lemon therapy, which I'm gonna discuss uh, in more detail in our next talk, um, can increase urine citrate. Um, uh, certainly there have been a number of studies that have shown that. Uh, there have not been many studies that have actually demonstrated that a concomitant reduction in stone risk, though, it is logical to follow that if you increase urinary citrate, regardless of the means, you should decrease stone formation. The other benefit of lemon therapy is it inherently increases patients' fluid intake. Um, additionally, in our practice, we use a fair amount of sodium bicarbonate for patients with renal insufficiency. Um, we usually start with 1,300 milligrams twice daily. Um, it's a nice cheap alternative. There are, I do have colleagues who will just literally use baking soda. Um, you know, perhaps a teaspoon uh, twice a day um, or and then titrate it. Um, you do want to be cautious in patients with hypertension um, and in patients with hypercalcemia, though in general, and we've looked at this in our patient population, um, the sodium load from sodium bicarbonate does not have a, a significant impact on urinary calcium. Another alternative is potassium bicarbonate. This comes as a, a, an effervescent tablet. Um, it comes in a dose of 25 milli equivalents twice daily. Um, again, GI offset. And, and for these patients, it's the same monitoring as we use for potassium citrate. Um, we check a BMP and repeat 24 urines. Um, you know, we actually looked at our experience. We, we, we happen to use a lot of sodium bicarbonate and potassium bicarbonate, largely due to the cost and availability of potassium citrate, as well as the tolerability. And there are a number of companies that uh, offer coupons, for instance, for these drugs. Um, and sometimes they're better covered. So we compared the, the citrate and pH response for patients uh, on potassium citrate to those we started on potassium bicarbonate and sodium bicarbonate. Uh, and what we found is that uh, essentially, um, when you look at potassium bicarbonate and sodium bicarbonate, they significantly raise urinary citrate, and it's a similar effect to what potassium citrate does. Uh, when you look at alkali, it, same, same situation when you, you look at increased pH, the pH uh, increases uh, significantly, um, similar to what you would see in potassium citrate. Um, so these are very effective. And if you look, and these are, this is a little bit older, uh, but if you go on GoodRx and you look at the cost comparison, 
um, you can see that there are substantial savings on a monthly supply um, for either sodium bicarbonate or potassium bicarbonate. So I think these are fairly effective um, uh, alternatives for patients who can't afford or tolerate potassium citrate. Um, and so really in conclusion, you know, I think potassium citrate is indicated for patients with recurrent stones due to hypocitraturia, low urine pH and uric acid stone formers, as well as idiopathic stone formers who failed dietary management. Um, and there are alternatives out there. Um, a, a question that come up earlier about why is potassium citrate um, so expensive? Uh, there's a, a number of reasons uh, I could speculate as to it. Um, but for unfortunately, it's just not covered well and people certainly lobbied for better coverage. And um, it's a challenge for all of us, which is why we you know, use these alternatives. So now I'm gonna um, bear with me because uh, this will be the first time I'm giving this presentation. And I found out I was giving it yesterday, but um, it's a subject that I'm uh, very uh, familiar with. Uh, and, and Brian Eisner, unfortunately, couldn't be here today. It's something uh, he's very passionate about, he's done a lot of work in, uh, talking about dietary prevention of stones. And then we'll get in a little bit more detail of hyperoxaluria. Um, these are Brian's uh, disclosures. Um, so, you know, he talks about medical nutrition therapy and, you know, diet um, certainly has an influence on stone formation, but it's, it's really one of many factors. It, it, there's interplay between genetics, anatomy, physiology, GI physiology, comorbidities such as diabetes and insulin resistance. And, you know, I, I often tell patients when we do a 24-hour urine that um, a 24-hour urine is really an oversimplification of what's really happening uh, inside the kidney. Um, but the nice thing about dietary treatment is that it has a very uh, low side effect profile and it's often what patients prefer. Um, when you look at what, you know, when you survey patients um, and ask them, you know, what are you motivated to do? Uh, they're motivated to modify their diet and they're motivated to modify their drinking habits. Um, I imagine many of the audience are sniggering because all your patients tell you how motivated they are, but uh, taking that motivation into true action and change is a whole nother story. Uh, and it is a challenge to get people to change. Um, one of my partners, Chuck Scales, is leading a clinical trial on NIH, specifically looking at how you can use certain behavioral economic techniques to potentially nudge patients to do better jobs of drinking. So uh, perhaps more to come on that, but patients are definitely interested in diet. Um, it's just a matter of getting them to do it. So, you know, volume from a diet standpoint, I, I certainly tell my patients that fluids are by far and away the most important uh, preventative. And I tell particularly my younger patients, if you don't want to be on lifelong medication, you need to be drinking about 100 ounces a day. And, and this is the data that supports it. This was a, a really well done trial, uh, particularly in the world of stones, uh, about 25 years ago now, uh, where uh, Borgi randomized patients to counseling them on a high fluid intake versus nothing. Uh, and patients in the high fluid intake group achieved urine volumes of two and a half liters. Um, and they had a really low stone recurrence rate over a long period of time. And their stone recurrence rate was 50% of what the low fluid intake group was, 12% versus 27%. So it's pretty good evidence to support, again, that um, fluids can really help prevent stones. Um, and the question becomes what to drink. And again, I, uh, much like Brian, I keep it very simple. There are two things I tell my patients not to drink. Anything sugary, 
which is broad, but anything with a high sugar content and then dark sodas. Um, so here, Brian talks about increased risk of sodas so have been associated with sugar-sweetened colas, sugar-sweetened non-colas, and then punch. And then interestingly, there's a decreased risk of kidney stones with uh, coffee, um, whether it's caffeinated or not, tea, wine, beer, and orange juice. The interesting thing about tea is epidemiologically, Gary Curhan, Gary Curhan and his group showed that patients in the highest quintile of tea consumption, so really these are people who are drinking 64 ounces of tea or more a day, have the lowest risk of stones. And if you think about it, tea is mostly water. Um, and so really uh, tea is preventive. There's some people who theorize that caffeine will also helps uh, prevent stones due to the diuretic effect. Um, and so the volume effect really counterbalances any concerns over oxalate. Um, so I, I don't counsel tea avoidance. Um, from a diet standpoint, the DASH diet is really a great tool too. This is dietary approaches to stop hypertension it is what you would expect it to be. It's gonna be high, pro, high fruits and vegetables, whole grains, it's moderate uh, meat, low sodium. Um, I think this is a great tool because a lot of patients after I counsel them on diet, look at me and go, all right, doc, if you're so smart, what can I eat? And I look back at them and go, well, I'm not a nutritionist, unfortunately, and I don't have Chris Pennison waiting in the wings, but here's a great thing you can go on the internet and look up recipes and in general is a great tool to reduce diet. And I pair this with an oxalate list so they don't get them in, themselves in trouble by you know, eating daily spinach salads. But um, I think this is a great tool that patients are very um, interested in because they are often looking for recipes and things they can eat. Um, animal protein, um, again, uh, increases the risk of stones by likely increasing urine calcium and urine citrate. Um, there's some equivocal data. Um, I, much like Brian, say nothing bigger than the palm of your hand in a single serving. I typically tell them two servings a day. Um, I'm sure many of you similar to me will get questioned and be like, so no red meat, right, doc? But chicken and fish are okay. And unfortunately, Sarah uh, Best ruined that for all of us when she and Chris Penniston uh, published a study some time, uh, some years ago now, showing that unfortunately um, all animal protein is equally culpable. So I have stolen Sarah's line, uh, which uh, my patients very much appreciate. Uh, anything with a face um, is counted as animal protein. And so far, the only pushback I've gotten is what about clams and oysters? Uh, but uh, generally speaking, that's the recommendation to moderate animal protein intake. Um, sodium, again, we've talked earlier, I think Sarah mentioned this uh, as well as Jody did, um, but Sarah more specifically, um, sodium intake, a big risk for stones. Sodium is in everything. Um, it increases urinary calcium. I tell patients moderate sodium intake. I think the daily ADA um, limits are about two to 3,000 um, a day. I don't give patients specific targets because quite frankly, it's very hard to measure the salt in your diet. So what I tell them is at the grocery store, you wanna make sure you're looking at labels. You wanna avoid particularly high sodium foods, your processed foods, your canned vegetables. So go to the frozen aisle and get your fresh frozen. Um, and then uh, you definitely wanna avoid uh, the salt shaker. And it's important to make it explicitly clear. Sea salt counts as salt. Um, basically uh, kosher salt counts as salt, like anything that has sodium in it. Um, uh, it counts. So oxalates is obviously an area of, of interest for all of us. Uh, in general, 
in my practice, I find that uh, high urine oxalate as a isolated abnormality is a rare cause of stones. Um, patient can only control a portion. It's only about a third of oxalate in the urine actually comes from the diet. Um, green vegetables, spinach, potatoes, cereals, uh, oranges, vitamin C, as mentioned earlier, strawberries, chocolate, nuts. Um, here, it's really important um, to, to take a little bit of a deep dive um, in terms of diet. Um, and this is probably where I would spend the majority of my time querying diet. Um, so there are some epidemiologic studies, interestingly enough, that demonstrate that dietary oxalate is not related to kidney stone risk and is only a in younger women and only modest risk in older women. Um, the only foods with enough oxalate to significantly change urine oxalate or spin it within moderation, you probably could consume vast amounts of other foods, but uh, really in moderation or spinach. Spinach, beets, and rhubarbs by far have the highest oxalate. Uh, almonds, and then vitamin C in really high doses. Um, almonds are really, almonds and soy you have to be careful with because vegetarians will often have almond milk and soy milk, particularly vegans, as their calcium source. So you have to be really careful and really ask explicitly, like, where, where do you get your calcium? And if it's almond milk, you really have to caution them that that can actually be increasing the risk for stones. Um, uh, Dr. Eisner uses the Wake Health um, Oxalate list. I use a list through the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, that These are all downloadable lists. And the reason these lists are really helpful is they actually share milligrams per serving so that patients can really effectively triage their diet. And I counsel my patients, look at the list. I'm not giving you this to read and say, oh, you can never eat these foods again. I'm really giving you this list for two reasons. Number one, triage your diet and find out if there are foods you're eating a lot of that you didn't know had a lot of oxalate you could avoid. And then as we'll talk about in a second, find the foods you're eating a lot of where you need to concurrently consume calcium. Um, uh, phytate, uh, also a controversial, uh, uh, not really widely talked about, but may prevent stones. Um, uh, Brian put this in here. This is not something I commonly discuss with my patients. Um, it doesn't commonly come up. Uh, lemon juice and lemonade. Again, uh, I touched upon this in my talk. Um, you can increase citrate uh, with lemon. Uh, it could be homemade lemon juice. I often recommend crystal light lemonade because uh, it's inexpensive and it doesn't have sugar. Um, this is one recipe. Uh, that's been used. Um, uh, there, are other, there are others. Um, again, vi avoiding vitamin C is important at high doses because it can increase urine oxalate. Um, and so again, this is something that you can query your patients who have high urine oxalate. Um, again, these are some of the studies that looked at, uh, uh, some of the initial studies uh, by Dr. Stoller, looking at lemonade's effect on 24-hour urine parameters. Again, they showed you can increase urine citrate, but they didn't look specifically at stone outcomes. Um, this is a study that Brian did that's really eloquent that really looks at citrate content of different drinks. And it turns out that the highest alkali, uh, um, uh, sorry, this is actually looking at citrate and alkali. The highest alkali drink is diet orange sunkissed. Um, so again, even diet sodas, I even go so far for my younger patients, I give them permission uh, to drink diet Mountain Dew. Um, certainly if it'll increase their, um, increase their uh, uh, fluid intake. Oops, sorry. Um, so dietary calcium, again, it is really important. It's been shown in a number of studies that normal calcium intake is important for stone prevention. 
Um, and it has to do with oxalate absorption. So again, calcium at mealtime helps reduce urinary oxalate. And if you look at, if you control, um, if you look at a low calcium diet, it actually had a higher incidence of recurrence in stone disease. And it has to do again with oxalate absorption. Um, and so for, um, you know, these are some other potential causes of hyperoxaluria. Um, there have been more recent studies that showed like, obesity and diabetes are also associated with increased urine oxalate. Um, pyridoxine um, may reduce um, urine oxalate. I will use it on occasion, though I honestly have been underwhelmed by the results. There's one retrospective study in uh, hyperoxaluric where it showed it may help. Um, and so, uh, with that, I, I know I went through that fairly quickly, but we, we do have a number of questions I, I really like to get to. Um, the one other comment I, I just wanted to wrap up because um, it wasn't explicitly called out in the slides, but when I share the oxalate lists with patients, the reason, again, I like the milligram per serving list is when you look at greens, for instance, spinach is like four or 500 milligrams per serving, but kale has about 30 milligrams per serving. So there's a broad range. And that list helps find patients' alternatives, and it also finds where they should concentrate on getting calcium in their diet. Um, and I go so far to tell patients if they're not gonna have milk or dairy to even take a calcium supplement with their particularly high oxalate meals. So if they're, they're really insistent on having a spinach salad, you know, they could chew on a Tums or take a calcium citrate tab. Um, so with that, um, I guess I'll invite um, Jody and Sarah to, come back on. Um, um, I had tried my best to answer some uh, early questions and then during my talk, we got quite a bit more. Um, so um, I will, um, one of the questions I, I wanted to pose to the panelists um, that I thought was a, a really uh, a good question um, actually came very early on. So Jody and Sarah, in your normal encounter uh, where it's just you, I, um, how do you take an efficient dietary history? Like what are, the, what are the highlights? What are the things you make sure you ask your patients? I, uh, I could start. I mean, I, I first look at the 24-hour urine and see, you know, where, where are the abnormalities and then focus on asking specific questions there. Um, I think Sarah touched on, you know, for high urine sodium, the first thing patients say is, I don't use a salt shaker. I don't add salt to anything. And I tell them, you know, that's not where the majority of sodium comes from. Um, it, you know, it's, it's from the um, you know, processed foods and the and the preservation. And Sarah mentioned, um, you know, bread is actually an extremely um, uh, high uh, source of high sodium. So, um, you know, trying to educate patients to look at the labels of processed things that they're eating. I, similar to what Mike had mentioned, I think it's hard to tell people 2,000, 3,000 milligrams. They don't know what that means. I tell them don't eat anything where a single serving is more than 30% of your daily value of sodium, because by the time you get to the end of the day, you'll you'll definitely be over. Um, so I think kind of educating them about, you know, where sodium can come from, asking about the um, specific foods like spinach and and that's is what I focus on for oxalate. And then um, again, with animal protein, you know, uh, not focusing only on red meat, but fish, chicken, um, and, and pork as well. Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, and I, I said similar. I, I Even when I do my first go by, I try to bake some of those questions into my dietary counseling too. Um, Sarah, any other thoughts, Sarah, any, um, in terms of dietary history? 
Yeah, I, I think it's really difficult with the pressures that we have as urologists, how quickly we have to see patients and that sort of thing. It's difficult to take a good dietary history. So even if you don't have a Chris Peniston in your clinic, there are dietitians at most hospitals or in most insurance companies who could probably um, get at least a sodium and calcium intake uh, amount for patients. Otherwise, the main things, you know, I just like Jody, I base it on what I see on the 24 urine. If they've got sodium, then we go down that track. But, you know, I would say in general, as far as the oxalate stuff goes, I find out if they're one of those crazy spinach smoothie twice a day kind of persons. Uh, and if they're not that, it's probably not so much an overconsumption of oxalate as a relative paucity of calcium intake. So a lot of people have a fairly low calcium intake in their diet, and we tend to focus much more on adding calcium than restricting foods, because so many oxalate-rich foods are actually really healthy, uh, and so it's a shame to restrict that. But I've always, I don't know about you guys, but I've always found it funny that when patients come in, the like only dietary thing that they really know about kidney stones is that they're not supposed to eat spinach or chocolate or nuts or mostly the spinach thing. Um, and that's, you know, the minority of patients have hyperoxyuria as a risk factor compared to all the other things. So I think it's funny that somehow that's really pervaded the literature when it's not a really common risk factor. Thanks. And we've had a couple of questions about calcium supplements. I think, uh, um, and it's two-sided. One, I think in, on some is uh, do calcium supplements increase risk for stones? And the other is what is the role of calcium supplements as far as prevention and what calcium supplements do you, do you all use? And I'll make it easier. I'll, let's start with Sarah and then we'll go to Jody. Just to... Sure. Yeah, so I, I prescribe calcium uh, both in a dietary form and as a, as a supplement pretty frequently. Um, so, you can look at somebody's 24 hour urine if they have, they don't have hypercalciuria, you probably don't have to worry about it. If they have sort of a borderline high oxalate, you can prescribe that. But it's important to tell people that it's actually a lot better to take calcium in foods with your meals. So even if you are lactose intolerant, there are lots of foods like um, almond milk, if you're not hyperoxyuric, soy milks are often quite fortified with calcium. A lot of other calcium-rich foods out there that people can eat um, to with their meals that really are more effective and better absorbed. Um, but I do do calcium uh, citrate not infrequently as well, especially if patients just aren't getting there with that. Jody, do you want to comment on calcium supplementation as it pertains to stone risk? Yeah, I mean, I think the concern with calcium supplements is that some patients are taking a thousand milligrams a day of a calcium supplement and they're still eating, you know, several servings of dairy per day. So every serving of dairy has about 300 milligrams of elemental calcium. So if somebody's having three, four servings of dairy, you know, they're getting the recommended daily allowance through the food. And then when they add, you know, a, a, essentially doubling their intake with a thousand milligram supplement and your body doesn't have anywhere to store calcium. So it dumps the excess in the urine. So, you know, the thing I tell patients is if, if they are on a calcium supplement, you know, monitor how much dietary calcium or like you said, non-dairy sources of, of dietary calcium that they're having per day. Um, 
and figure out, you know, if they're having three, four servings of dairy a day, they don't need any calcium supplement. If they're only having one or two servings and maybe they just need half that. But the goal should be, you know, totaling their their dietary intake. And again, using every serving is about 300 milligrams um, and, and adding that to their supplement intake. And then the, the two together shouldn't exceed 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams, 1,200 milligrams for postmenopausal women and, and older men. Um, and then, um, you know, I, like Sarah, I mean, I, I do try to um, advise patients on taking calcium supplements if they have hyperoxaluria. Um, and uh, I usually use Citrical. I either use Citrical Petite, which is 350, or the 500 milligram Citrical. And again, specifically telling them, you know, don't take it in the morning. Take it with your, your high oxalate intake meals, like which is typically lunch and dinner. Um, and then a um, couple questions um, as it pertains so what do you do with the patient who has a normal 24-hour urine um, and continues to make stones or sort of a corollary a patient who started out with a metabolic abnormality that you have now fixed and their 24-hour urine is normal and they continue to make stones um, so I'll let uh, I'll let Jody tackle this one first I guess, I and mean, the first thing I would make sure is that that 24-hour urine really is normal, and and looking at the urine creatinine and making sure, you know, is it actually an adequate collection? So are those normal values really a reflection of 24 hours worth of urine? Um, you know, assuming that that that's the case, the other question would be: Is that patient just behaving perfectly on the day they do the collection, and you know, all the other days out of the month or the year, they're they're not. Um, so, uh, you know, in line with the AUA guidelines, I mean, it's appropriate that if patients are still forming stones despite you know uh, normal appearing urine values, to to I, I probably wouldn't start a thiazide and potassium citrate simultaneously, um, but maybe you know start potassium citrate first, and assuming the normal renal function and then you know add a thiazide um later if, if they're still forming stones sarah any thoughts or i think i would just say the same that probably wouldn't say much different and maybe time for a different question or, or yeah the only thing i would add i i will also say that in those patients i also think imaging becomes really important um because uh a lot of times you'll see patients who'll come in and you'll start them on preventative therapy and they'll continue to pass stones and it may be stones they've already possessed. And those are patients where, it may, it, you know, I, I personally don't routinely use CT for surveillance of my metabolic uh, stone formers. I, I reserve CT for, you know, acute situations where you want to diagnose a stone and then for surgical planning, particularly for percutaneous stone surgery. But that's a situation where CT may be particularly helpful because you could have a potentially negative KUB but the patient has small stones and they're not actually making stones, they're passing existing stones. Um, so that would be the only thing I have to add. And I've, I've done that from time to time. Um, uh, and then you kind of find uh, that's sort of what's going on. Um, okay, we got a lot of questions I'm trying to uh, sort through. Um, oh, one thing I, I don't think any of us specifically called out and I, I suspect I know the answer to this, but what are your guys' thoughts and what's the role for alpurinol in your practices? So, 
Um, I, I would say that one of the most uh, frustrating things that, uh, that that I see is if a, a uric acid stone former, um, you know, comes to me and they've been started on allopurinol and they're not on uh, uh, an alkalizing agent like potassium citrate. So, like Mike said, um, you know, basically the 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 number one, the overriding reason, the main reason why patients form uric acid stones is purely due to urine pH. Um, so, um, you know a uric acid stone former um, needs to have alkalization of their urine to prevent future uric acid stones. And with appropriate alkalization of the urine, the urine uric acid actually goes up. So the concentration of uric acid in the urine is going to increase because you're dissolving the rock, you're you know, increasing um, the free uric acid into the solution of the urine. So um, the only patients that I consider putting on allopurinol are patients who are calcium oxalate stone formers and have high urinuric acid that you can't control with diet by restricting dietary protein. Um, so it is a very, very small subset of patients that I have. And there are patients where the idea is like through heterogeneous nucleation, that uric acid crystal is acting as, acting as a sticking point for calcium. So decreasing the absolute amount of uric acid in them may reduce their risk of calcium oxalate stones. Um, so, um, you know, a uric acid stone former, it really isn't a role, in, in my opinion, for allopurinol. Yeah, agreed. I would say the main interaction I have with allopurinol is stopping it when patients were referred to me. And, you know, I have patients who've been on it for decades for uric acid stones, even if they haven't had a stone for, you know, 10 years. You know, it's really amazing. I would say, I, I tell our residents that that's the most commonly mistaken thing that people do uh, in managing stone disease is prescribing allopurinol incorrectly. So you're gonna almost never use it. Yeah, I agree. I very rarely use my practice. I use it for patients who, uh, if they have normal urine pH and they have calcium stones and have exceptionally high, and for me, that's over, easily over a thousand or 1200 milligrams uric acid and they continue to make stones. It's sort of the last thing I check, which leads to, um, I, I, to, uh, I guess another question is, um, uh, and I'll, I'll frame it a little differently than the questioner asked. The question, the specific question was if you could, if you could only treat one elevated urinary calcium or low urine citrate, which one would you treat? I just reframe it. If you, which one would you start with? Because I think realistically it's, you, you should be able to treat both. Now, obviously there are patient factors. There's only so many pills people will tolerate. Um, but if you had a choice, say they were, the magnitude was relatively equal, which would you all attack first? Sarah, I'll start with you. I would probably start with the citrate, the low citrate. I mean, I'd factor in other things like how severe is the hypercalciuria and what's the urine pH and all those things. It's kind of a milieu that we're working with, not isolated risk factors. Um, but I'd probably start with the alkali uh, and potassium citrate because there's data that shows that even potassium citrate alone can actually improve somewhat hypercalciuria. So you can get good bang for your buck with both. And if you give somebody a thiazide for hypercalciuria, it may actually make their citrate even worse. So I would start there with the citrate. Yeah, I'd agree. Okay, that was that was easy. Um, another um, another one. Uh, a question is: In your guys' practice, um, how soon after either surgery or an acute stone event would you propose uh, 
doing a 24-hour urine? Um, for, for me, I, you know, logistically, I bring almost all my patients um, in for imaging at about six or eight weeks after surgery. So I typically also leave stents after ureteroscopy. Um, and so I'll, um, uh, at the stent removal appointment, order the 24-hour urine so that in that six-week window, you know, they can do the 24-hour urine. So when I'm seeing them back at that first um, post-op visit at six or eight weeks, uh, then I can review the stone analysis, the 24-hour urine and the imaging with them at that at that point. Same. I, you know, I tell patients usually to wait a week or two after the stent comes out, just because I figure, you know, maybe they haven't been eating or drinking normally or what they usually do, or maybe the debris from, you know, hematuria or whatever. I don't know. It shouldn't necessarily affect it, but I tell them to wait a couple weeks. Yeah. Likewise, I, I make sure it's clear to them that they should be on their normal routine. So I will admit, despite we we routinely see people, I routinely see people back at eight weeks um, for imaging after surgery, and oftentimes, uh, in some cases, if they have a stent in for two weeks because of you know a complicated case, um, I have had patients do their 24 urines with their stents, and despite my best efforts to counsel them, and you know you just kind of roll with it and say, was that your normal routine? And you know there are those handful of patients who tolerate stents. Um, so uh, I think um, we're coming up against time. I'm trying to look. Oh, uh, one last, I guess one last question. And I think this is something uh, we didn't also explicitly talk about, but magnesium supplementation. So we know that low urine magnesium is a, has been associated with increased risk for stones. Do either of you specifically supplement magnesium? I know the data has been somewhat controversial and not conclusive. Sarah? Sure. Um, yeah. So I think, yes, somewhat contra somewhat controversial. I, being at the institution I'm at, and again, Dr. Penniston is a big believer in this, I definitely do prescribe uh, magnesium for patients who have uh, hypomagnesuria. Um, also, it's really important if you see patients who have hypocitaturia and a low urine magnesium, it's often super difficult to correct the citrate unless you also address or supplement the magnesium and normalize that. So if you have been throwing potassium citrate at somebody and they're taking it and you still are seeing a low citrate, you know, double check the magnesium. So I will say I don't supplement magnesium. So I have a question for you, Sarah. What dose do you start at? Yeah. Same thing I was gonna ask. I don't care yeah. either. <laughs> Often I text Chris Penniston to double check on what she would tell. <laughs> so I, I would say it's a nice advantage to have her number, but I think it's like 200 milligrams a day um, of the magnesium oxide. I also think I have a note on my phone that is the dose because she made fun of me like the 14th time I asked. So. <laughs> Um, again, I want to thank the, uh, the entire AUA staff who've been just so incredibly supportive and helpful. Um, I certainly want to thank my co-panelists, 